0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Robin Gogol on interpersonal neurobiology and play therapy.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. It's a pleasure to be with all of you again today, and I want to share a bit about the guest who will be joining us in just a bit we are going to be speaking with Robin Goble. She has been on the podcast before. I'm sure after today she will be again because she is just a really wonderful person to learn from and to speak with and to interview. Um, But today, our topic with her is going to be that of interpersonal neurobiology and play. So let me just give you a little bit about her background. Um, She's an LCSW, an LMSW, and a registered play therapist supervisor. Um, She is currently taking a break. Um, She's on a sabbatical from seeing clients and is focused at this time on teaching uh, and consultation. So she also has a instructor appointments at Portland Community College, where she teaches about the science of interpersonal neurobiology. And she's also had an instructor appointment at Portland State University School of Social Work Child Welfare Partnership. And in that, she has taught about adoption and foster family therapy in their postgraduate certificate program. So I know you are going to Enjoy hearing from her. Uh, she always has a lot of great information to share, and she will be with us in just a minute. All right, hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. This is part two with Robin Goble, and I am so excited to continue this conversation, Robin. Me too. We're having a blast. Yes, we are. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we ended last week, you know, we were beginning to talk about... Um, neuroception and yeah. how we're, we're constantly scanning um, for safety for connection and you were talking about this like big shift in your mind about this but also this like puzzlement like okay why would you be behaving this way if you really <laughs> want connection right. And I wanted before we get into that I wanted to share something um, of my own experience of this big shift that I had. Um, about the idea of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. And so this was a term that you know we would talk about, you know, you know a lot with traumatized kids and they're constantly scanning their environment and they're looking for safety and basically their back brain's hijacking their cortex because they have to do that all the time and scanning, scanning, scanning. Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? And I think what Porges Theory did for me was like, wait, 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 wait. That's not just traumatized people. Right. That's like everybody, like all the time scanning, like I'm scanning, you're scanning, like people with less trauma are scanning. And I remember too, you know, like you said, you have these aha moments as you, as you learn more. And I I just remember thinking how, just how normalizing that is. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's, it's a continuum. Um, and it's something we're all doing to various degrees not anyway minimizing um, no. the trauma people have experienced yeah. and, but that was just like a really big shift for me right that you're it, it, it's not just the severely traumatized person is hypervigilant right. you know and these scanning so so anyway i just yeah, wanted, right. wanted to share that um and as we move into thinking about you know how this shows up in the therapy room right. um, and you know what we
2: do about it and how it shows up in ourselves. Right. Well, let's just go with hypervigilance since we're talking about it. So you're absolutely right. And people are always, I always get that question when I teach neuroception at least four times every second the brain is scanning for danger. And people are always like, like, is that everybody or just the traumatized brain? I'm like, no, that's everybody. Right. And four times every second, I mean, Corgis has gone on to say, constantly as opposed to four times every second. But I think four times every second is a more impressive thing to say. Like, there's this idea about every quarter of a second that feels wow as opposed to constantly. I don't know. So, um... So, the, yeah, that's not hypervigilance. That's the way our nervous system is designed to work. What then we feel as hypervigilance is when that four times every second is happening and the, and the child's brain, in the individual's brain, but we're talking specifically about children, is already at a heightened level of arousal and expecting something dangerous to happen next. Yes. That that's where we get these behaviors people would maybe call as hypervigilance and the you know, the way that eyes are moving and the way that there's there's really already some energy in the arms and the legs and it's hard to focus because they're pulling in all this information from the outside world in this more specific way. Well what we what poor just has has helped us understand is like that body and the brain is in the nervous system is taking these shifts very intentionally to be able to pull in different kinds of noises and different sounds and you know these uh, these pieces that signal danger right so now I can look at a behavior like hypervigilance and go, well, not only does that make perfect sense, but that also tells me a little bit about where this person is and their level of arousal. Like what state are they in in their nervous system? Mm-hmm. And when I understand that, then some of the other behaviors make more sense because right. that's a behavior of somebody who believes they're in danger. Right, People who are in danger, are controlling, are mm-hmm. sometimes manipulative, are mm-hmm. more prone to verbal and physical aggression. I know I am. Yes, yeah, and so so it's almost like we have
1: to think we have two things going on here. This this scanning and searching for safety and all of that is a biological imperative. Yep, that, you know we're all doing. We can even go back to attachment theory and the attachment system activated yep. by fear and danger and needing to yep. in proximity to safety, all of that. Yep. Yep. Um, but yet, we're also needing to consider like level of arousal when mm-hmm. a person is doing that. Yes, where that helps to explain these behaviors. Would that right. is that a good way of putting that all together? Yes.
2: Yeah. So for me, I can take it out of any sort of like personalization and Mm -hmm. look at like, oh, this is a sympathetically aroused nervous system that is neuroceiving a certain level of threat or danger. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now that's not personal. Now that's not about me. Now that's not about their character. Mm -hmm. Now that's not, you know, I can pull it out of all of those pejorative things Mm -hmm. and think about it from a sense of first of all it helps it helps it make sense when we understand the biological underpinnings of it and that brings everybody regulation usually Mm -hmm. um, the people involved and then I feel like that helps me know what to do next Yes. Right? that That's what we mm-hmm. yeah i don't necess- i don't walk into working with a kid trying to decrease their level of arousal necessarily mm-hmm. i'm trying to shift their experience of safety so that their sympathetically aroused nervous system that's showing maybe us this behavior of hypervigilance or controlling behavior or manipulation or whatever, I wanna see if I can offer to the best of my ability knowing that there's a lot of things I can't control, cues of safety Mm -hmm. and inviting their system into connection and safety. Mm -hmm. Because when we're experiencing connection and safety, we're not manipulative. We're not controlling. We're not defensive. You know, so these behaviors we're trying to help decrease, they shift naturally when the nervous system is experiencing cues of safety from the environment and from their internal world.
1: Right, right. And so as I'm thinking about this, and I I don't even know how to phrase this, mm-hmm. but um, I'm thinking of this idea of rad kids and kids with rad and um, you and I both have lots of problems with that diagnosis <laughs> and that label, which we've both written about, so right. I know that we'll go <laughs> into that here, yeah. but it, it's a whenever I hear that, I hear it in a pejorative way. Yeah. Like that particular just awful unhelpful diagnosis yeah. in like, um, it's like, you know, th- this is when it's like the most horrible, terrible, worst of the worst behaviors, right. um, you know, early on, being considered sociopathic, right, little people, um, right. so like, w- what, I love what you're talking about in terms of. N- it, it's just all, not just, because it's, as you said, it's, it's problematic, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but it's a reaction of the nervous system. It's not some sort of manip- manipulative, evil, like yeah. bad seed core or something.
2: It's not a character trait. Oh, I love that. It's a very reasonable response to what's happening in their body brain based on like the way we experience every unfolding moment is that for example in this moment like all the sensory data that's happening in this exact moment in my life is all coming into my brain and it mixes with 40 years of experiences right and it the mixing of those two pieces together is what creates my subjective experience of reality and therefore creates like how I'm reacting in each unfolding moment. Right. When I have unmetabolized emotion, <laughs> the past floods the present. And yeah. so even if I am, you know, in a place that other people would call safe, Yes. Because of the way my brain and the unmetabolized emotion is creating my reality, my experience is that I'm not safe. Right. And it's very reasonable for somebody who's not safe, especially relationally not safe. We're not just like talking about running from a burning fire, you know, like a house fire or something, but like relationally unsafe it's very reasonable to use behavior strategies like manipulation, control, verbal aggression, physical aggression, opposition defiance. Like they make perfect sense if we remember that ultimately we're just trying to stay alive. Right. Now, again, just like you said, just because they make perfect sense doesn't mean that we're just okay with them. (laughs) They're not, you know, long, they're leaving the person stuck in a place of believing everything is unsafe. Right. That's a terrible way to exist in the world.
1: Right. So, Robin, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the brain, about the nervous system, um, you know, getting more into how does that show up in therapy? How does that show up in the playroom? But if a child, you know, is living in a fear state let's just say talk to us a bit about what that is
2: like for a child the way of being in the world where you have this felt sense that everything is unsafe everything is dangerous is it really helps me to stay connected as much as possible to the truth of what, what a terrible tragedy it is to be constantly living in that space. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether it seems accurate to me or not, right? Like, regardless of whether I can look at a situation and, and say, this situation isn't dangerous it's so clear, the way this child is responding, that their nervous system is experiencing an overwhelming, intense experience of, of life-threatening danger. Mm-hmm. It can feel frustrating to me. It can even feel personal to me. sometimes, like, hey, I'm not the one making you feel dangerous, and I know this feels so personal to parents at times, which is very normal, very human reaction. Of course, and I have great compassion for that as well. Um, But it seems vital to me as a therapist to honor that that's my experience, honor that that's the parent's experience, have a lot of compassion for how hard that is, and then shift back into remembering how tragic it is to be trapped in a nervous system of experiencing everything in life as dangerous. How exhausting it is, how it perpetuates itself, and how it's stealing from people this, what feels like this basic human right of felt safety and then the opportunity for connection and relationship.
0: Mm
1: -hmm, mm mm-hmm i'm reminded as you're talking um something that um, some listeners may be familiar with and i'm certain you are is um the circle of security shark music video you know where you're showing a certain scene that you know with with calming music that looks you know very serene and nice and how that same exact Scene that yeah. same path that same you know trail when they're playing that music from Jaws it's like you feel like something's gonna leap out behind right. you know that's what you know when I show that to an audience um, yes. they'll say I feel like something's gonna jump out at me and I think right. about that you know what, one image that often comes to my mind is um, kids walking through a hallway at school mm-hmm. and you know uh, thinking that you know it's just class is changing, I mean, yeah. no big deal, but when you think right. about shark music, and I will add, I know that that video, video was originally made about parents hearing shark music, but yeah. I do think it's also really um, illustrates the point that you're making, like what is it like yeah. to walk through the world in that level of fear? Yeah.
2: yeah, and it's terribly, terribly sad, like the feeling that comes up for me is just this intense sadness of what then that person is missing out on Mm -hmm. it's that sadness that that then again kind of helps shift me out of normal human feelings of frustration or annoyance or like come on nothing's unsafe here um which again very 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 normal human reaction yes it's um but it's not helpful in the moment when we're thinking about trying to help, you know, shift this child experience with safety.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, um and we may have used this word earlier in the podcast, but this idea of presence in yeah. the therapy room and um being able to manage your own emotions that come up in the face of a child or a parent reacting to you that way. You know, what are, in, let, let's look at our own uh, nervous system and brain for a minute. Yeah. You know, what do you have to say about that?
2: I have to say that I think it is the most important thing that we can spend time working on as therapists, that we spend a lot of time, rightfully so, gathering the latest tools and the latest techniques and all of the really cool things that are emerging from people's brilliantly creative minds about you know what to do in the therapy room and I have so much respect for that and it's there we need tools in our toolbox and we um, I think the most important thing for us to really study and pay attention to and give a lot of time and energy to is Using ourselves as the kind of quote unquote or proverbial tool that felt safety and experiences of safety is the most important thing that's offered in the therapeutic experience. And there's a lot of things that play into a creation of felt safety and a client's ability to receive felt safety. But the number one thing is the state of our own nervous system, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: offering safety through our own embodied presence and being able to stay in a state of curiosity and compassion and willingness to follow the client wherever they're wanting to bring us and completely honoring their experience of reality, regardless of whether that's our experience or not, and managing our own implicit worlds, our own unconscious things that we're bringing into the therapy room and working hard to come into awareness and contact of of what those things are. And doing that work then allows us to show up with a level of presence that is the presence we're talking about when we say, you know, our presence is the most important thing or the relationship's the most important thing in therapy, which I one million percent agree, but I also think that it can be misinterpreted by very well-meaning therapists. That all I have to do is like literally physically show up. Yes, you do have to literally physically show up, but that's not what. That's the the, that's is. the
1: bare minimum of what you have to do. <laughs> Right. That's yes. Exactly. Un- unfortunately.
2: <laughs> exactly. And cultivating that level of presence, especially when you work with the clients that you and I work with, right? The level of intensity and overwhelm that exists in the therapy room, cultivating that level of presence is a huge goal. Huge. It requires a ton of time, a ton of energy, a ton of, you know, real deliberate, thoughtful care and attention
1: yeah and it can mean being in our own therapy it can Mm -hmm. mean needing to find rituals that prepare us to enter into the therapy room Mm -hmm. i personally think it definitely means seeing your sessions on video (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's difficult to know what's going on unconsciously without seeing it without being able to step back outside so you know I've had videos where I'm like whoa (laughs) I really had that expression on my face whoa exactly I really did that with that turn like that's not something I would have reported to the supervisor you know and it wasn't it's not that I wouldn't have reported it because I was ashamed of it oh it could could be that I mean but a lot of times it, I wouldn't have brought it up in supervision because it's unconscious and I didn't know I was doing it.
2: Exactly. Exactly. It is so vulnerable and terrifying to watch yourself on video, but I completely agree with you that, you know, being brave enough to notice all of the nonverbal cues that we're giving our clients is so. Very important.
1: Yeah, because generally, uh, and I don't want to go too far off on this because it is a little soapbox of mine. So, so you know, there's a risk of it. But generally, what not generally, what you're bringing up with your supervisor or someone you consult with is what's in your conscious mind. Right. Like that's really all you can bring up. <laughs> exactly. So you know, we could be missing this whole this whole other piece and. And I want to say too, um, and this is where I also have empathy for caregivers because I, I yes. do. You know, I work with a lot of parents who're like, I re- I've read the books, and I've the yeah. con- I've gone to Empowered to Connect, and I've, right. you know, I've done all of these things. And because yes. I also use video intervention therapy and treatment, and mm-hmm. because I do in-home work, but you could also see us in a therapy session in an out in an outpatient mm-hmm. setting. Parents are often, and I own this as a therapist too, but they're often not doing what they think they're doing. Right. Right. yeah, so, you know, we're, we're trained in certain models and how you're supposed to do things. And what we're talking about here is you might think you're doing that, but you know, really you're not.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. yeah. I love using video with parents too. Like I love the, I love showing them all the things they're doing so well. Yes. Cause there's so many yes. and the same true for us, right? Like we watch a video true. and oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I'm, I like that part. And I think that's so important for parents. Like look at all these amazing things. Yes. And so allowing them to discover moments where they can see how their child's experience them in a way that they weren't maybe intending. Yes. Yes
1: exactly I agree. exactly mm-hmm. so let's you know i always think that um having a little bit of some kind of a case example in a discussion like this you know really makes it real i think you know some of what we're talking about here makes it real right mm-hmm. now in the segment but i think you know sometimes we can get so caught up in all this brain science and polyvagal theory and what does panks upset? you know all of, so like Maybe share a case example from, or, or you know, a compilation, um, to, uh, obviously you would to, to protect, protect confidentiality, but like a kid that's really in a fear state and how you might have to handle that in the, in the therapy room.
2: Yeah. The, the first, truly the first thing that comes to mind when I think about, you know, a specific situation that comes to mind is how I work so hard to have enough regulation to have a, a moment of my own pause where I can go like, okay, what's happening for me right now? Yes. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Out of control. Yes. And, and then, you know, when I think when you work with kids, there's this extra layer of intense vulnerability of like, and their parents are watching. Yes. <laughs> Hearing it From the waiting room or whatever, 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 whatever. And so there's, all these other things that like flood us as therapists. And assuming we're not in a crisis state where I have to um, intervene in a way that provides safety. Right. We've not escalated to that, which does occasionally happen. I work really hard to call a moment of pause in myself. And that's IPNB driven. That. Isn't exactly a technique, but it's a technique all at the same time of like, okay, notice everything that's happening for me. Like uh, all the, I have to show the parent that I know how to handle this, or I have to be a good therapist and get this under control right away. Or I can't let this happen in my therapy room. Good therapists don't let this kind of stuff happen in their therapy room or whatever it is. And just be like, mm, nope, all of that's for later because none of those thoughts have anything to do with this child's experience with me in the here and now. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, we're, you know, we're aiming for good enough here. Right, (laughs) right, right. So then I try to put on this lens of, what is this child doing because i believe everything is an attempt to move towards regulation yes everything is an everything has purpose everything is an attempt at finding coherence and organization oftentimes though when those attempts are you know connected with the neurobiology of disorganization and complex trauma and all that kind of stuff those attempts are these like Almost futile attempts that are trying to find regulation or organization, but not super successfully. So I try to look at like, what is this child doing? What's their body doing? Is this child throwing things? Is this child screaming? Is this child, you know, running? Are their legs moving? Are their arms moving? Are they, you know, what's is their body moving up and down? You know, I really try to look at what is literally happening and is there a way. I can connect with this child using that energy, using that movement, but also using my regulation that could bring that energy and that movement into some Mm co-organization. Can I blow up bubbles that get a child to maybe blow the bubble back at me or want to blow the bubbles themselves? Or can I toss a balloon towards them? that almost always they're going to engage in their own experience with the balloon. Like maybe they start tossing the balloon sort of back and forth themselves, or they toss it to me. And then now I've got energy, there's still a lot of energy in the room, but it's starting to bring in some rhythm. It's starting to bring in some connection. It's starting to bring in some co-organization while staying in this heightened aroused state. Mm-hmm. So I can think of kids, you know, as kids like come barely, you know, the child that just like, no matter what you do to create structure and organization, when you greet them in the, in the waiting room, mm-hmm. they just like blow past you anyway. And they're in your office before you can even get there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there's, you know, and so I can picture this and think about um, how I would, you know, I would run after them but not with the energy to catch them with the energy to join them to experience them and so while my feet are moving in the same way sort of regardless there's a very different energetic experience right there isn't this frantic oh I need to catch you there's this all right here we are you're running I will join you
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to look for a game or an experience that attempts to engage the legs that Mm -hmm. attempts to use that level of energy and Mm -hmm. once we're connected up then I may attempt to sort of shift and down, regulate, it's going to depend on mm-hmm. exactly what's happening in the moment, what my treatment goals are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and as a TheraPlay therapist and trainer, of course, you know, yes. I'm running all of this through that framework and um, thinking about um, this, this is, and not just TheraPlay, this is the art of all therapy yeah. that. You know whether you're a therapy therapist and you had your session planned, and then the kids really dysregulate like that goes that all goes out the window. Um, and now here's the art yes. of, of therapy, yes. um, and or even if if you're if you you do some other form of play therapy, if you do child centered or something like that. And we talked it earlier in the podcast about um if it's still in there since I know we had a little <laughs> a little snafu. Um, but you know, training that you end the search the session when a kid gets really dysregulated. And I say, no, that's when that's when yeah. it all really starts, you know? Exactly. I mean, uh, and you know that that's where we have to bring to bear ourselves and um our own regulation and and this is where when people think it's about, you know, TheraPlay activities, it's not about TheraPlay activities. Like, no. they're just a means, they're just yep. a tool we bring in, just as whatever kind of therapy you do, you bring these tools or techniques in. But yep, without yep. this that we're talking about, which is way yeah. harder, way <laughs> harder. Like, yes. I really, yeah. uh, I, you know, as we talked about earlier, if it was about tools and techniques, I'd be like set, you
2: know? Yeah. <laughs> I know. We are good students. We work hard. We master things. We are A-plus people, Karen, me and you. Sometimes I just am like almost in hysteria over how I can, I am an A-plus person. You give me a task and I will finish it. And I managed to land myself in a career where that is not possible. I know. (laughs) No, let me do this right enough,
1: right? Yes, yes, Yes. Yes. yeah. It's it's true, you know. Um. So yeah. So all right. So Robin, another thing that I know you are fond of saying, since I you know follow follow (laughs) read read your stuff and you know read your comments and groups we lurk in. Yes. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or participate in Uh Um, so um, this idea that all parts are welcome and I think that's just such a beautiful phrase and I would like you to share what you mean by that in terms of in the therapy room all parts are welcome of like who the child the parent you like just tell us what what you mean by that
2: When you gave the example of how some therapists are trained to end sessions when things go a certain way, that's the first thought that came into my mind just those, you know, 30 seconds ago is how am I communicating to a client? All parts of you are welcome here. If the moment they bring me their most hurting, most vulnerable, most protected parts of self, but usually are expressed in a way that's hard, right? If the moment those parts of self show up in the therapy room and I say, oh, you know, we're going to have to end our session for today, I I don't know how we also invite all parts into the room.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. How can all parts come if the moment a certain part shows up or if the moment a certain part shows part shows up and we put a boundary on it and we put a boundary on it a second time and a third time and then the third's the magic number and so now the session's over for the day i i feel the same way you do like no those those are the exact moments we need to be in the therapy room
1: right because if that worked for this child they wouldn't be there in absolutely. our office, <laughs> like, absolutely. I'm sure.
0: Somebody
1: tried several warnings, and, <laughs> and then you you know something happens.
2: You know, I can I absolutely. I mean, I would say the exact same thing. Like, if that was going to work, you, you wouldn't even they wouldn't even be there. And I also kind of put that through my adult lens and think about like, what if that happened in my own therapy? Right. I had a therapy. Like, mm, sorry, we're gonna have to end for today. Oh, you know, so when I say all parts are welcome, I, there's so much in that. I I, I think that may be a phrase that's used in like the internal family systems model, which I want to be clear, like I'm not, I'm not trained in that. I've done my parts work training with my work with Bonnie Bandnock and her inner communities model, which has some definite similarities to internal family systems, um, and implicit in all parts are welcome are this belief is this belief that no behavior is maladaptive. every single thing that you do makes perfect sense for how you 're experiencing the world in this exact moment mm-hmm. and a way that i convey that to the client is by welcoming in all, all parts of them, all all behaviors, ex- although well, we're still acknowledging that I get to have my own boundaries too. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely behaviors that aren't acceptable. It's not okay for me to get kicked. Right. It's not okay for me to get spit on, but the part of you that holds that level of terror... Where kicking and spitting emerge, that part of you gets to come into the therapy room. And we're gonna figure out another way for that part of you to express that part self without anybody also getting hurt.
0: Beautiful.
2: Um, That's so beautiful, Robin. It's my I mean, and I wouldn't say I do that perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, by any stretch, but it is always my goal. And I believe my clients know that that's my goal, Um, somewhat because I'm very explicit at times and being clear about all parts of you get to come here and remember this amazingly precious child who would scream, I hate you, you're the worst therapist, I wish you would die, really hard, hard, things that are hard to regulate through, (laughs) sometimes being them at you. Mm hmm and at the end of every every time we would part, I'd find a way to communicate to this little one, those parts of you get to come here too. Because there's a lot of shame that would come yes. up around yes. those parts. Um, a lot of shame that would come up around having behaved that way. Yes. That, those parts get to come here too. And me and you, we're going to figure this out. I want you to bring those parts here. I'm going to do what I have to do to be able to tolerate being screamed at that somebody wished I was dead. Mm-hmm. I that work to tolerate that so that you can bring those parts here and we're gonna figure this out together because the experience that's underneath screaming at somebody that you adore, and I know that this child adored me, that you wish they were dead, the, the, the terror and the agony and the despair that's underneath that is tragic. And it's my job to find a space of holding
1: for that. -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, earlier when we were talking about um, working with really dysregulated kids and, you know, how that, you know, one of the things that's different um, than even dysregulated adults in general is the, you know, they just based on their own history, based on their development, whatever, there aren't filters right. in the same way. So they can call you ugly, nasty, whatever, you know, um, and um, it's easy to become triggered by that. I know from my yeah. interview with Bonnie Badnock, she prefers yeah. touched and
2: awakened rather than triggered. And awakened. <laughs> I am touched and awakened when a child tells me how bad I smell.
1: Yes. Or how fat you are. (laughs) (laughs) Or how your breath is so bad. Yes. yes. Yeah. so Yeah. 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 So, yeah, but really that, that what you're talking about is just, is just really, really beautiful and being able to, um, regulate ourselves and and having ha, okay so let's leap to how about all parts of us
2: being welcome like how that's we- exactly what i was thinking too yes yes so let's go there for a minute i have to welcome my parts that are touched and awakened when a client of any age but you're right the the, the younger ones <laughs> significantly less but i'm not sure i've ever had an adult client tell me how bad i smelled <laughs> or these things, they might be thinking them, but they don't say them
0: all up. <laughs> the
2: children are happy to say anything. Right. You know? And so having, um, you know, a commitment to all parts are welcome, my client absolutely means I have to commit to that truth about myself too. That when I notice myself, to touched and awakened. I am with those parts of myself in a caring and compassionate way. Right. And it might be, I notice you, I notice you're here, lovely part of self. And I will tend to you later mm-hmm. when I'm tending to this precious little one who's with me right now, right? This mm-hmm. human who's with me that I need to tend to and coming back without shame of all the ways we're touched and awakened in. In and out of the therapy room, Mm -hmm. all of my own experiences and my past have created everything about me and all these unfolding moments. And sometimes that means things and parts of self that I don't necessarily feel like super proud of, or I can feel very confused by or, you know, and to shift into, okay, well, those parts get to come here. And by here, I mean like in my own heart, in my own being, in my own way of being with myself. Mm -hmm. And when I do that work, when I get touched and awakened in a therapy room, it's way easier to notice it, notice without judgment, decide I'll come back to it later, return back to being with my client in the way that i really want to be with them which is also in that all parts are welcome here
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think that um you know as we're as we're winding down here you know this may be one of the really most important key ideas here um is all parts welcome and self and you know there there is that cliche in therapy um you can't take your clients where you yourself can't go. And um, it's true, you know, and and I think just part of my own journey is if I can't accept less than perfection in myself, if I can't accept all of these things that, that I work on in myself, How, you know, can we really bring that level of acceptance to the kids? I mean, mean, if they're doing something that you could never, ever accept in yourself. Right. Right? That's where this gets hard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And accepting something in yourself doesn't mean... Um, you're just okay with it always. You're, embra-
1: you're embracing it. Exactly. You're loving <laughs> it. You're fine with it coming out anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> Accepting it in yourself is going, I, under- I understand, even if I don't understand, but I believe that that part makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And hold something that makes perfect sense. And I'm going to have k- compassion towards that self while also still acknowledging. That there's times where that is a behavior maybe that's hurtful towards myself or hurtful for others and I want to keep working on it. Right, right. right. I like what you just said, acceptance, you know, doesn't mean embracing. Right, <laughs> right, right. Whatever. Yeah. Yes. Well,
1: uh, Robin, this has been such um, a great conversation with you. I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on the attachment theory in action podcast again um i do want to devote a little time to wh- how can they get more of robin you know where what are you doing uh, obviously you're not flying around the country a whole lot right now but you know what do you have available what do you have out there do you have some workshops coming up how can folks find um, more of your wonderful work that you're putting out there into the world.
2: Yeah. So I am trying to put lots of stuff out into the world right now because um, lots of people really need lots of support right now. So um, therapists can train with me in a couple different ways. I've transitioned all of my in-person workshops to live virtual trainings. Um, so people get lists of supplies and things ahead of time so that we can still do all these cool experientials and have small group experiences. Um, so you can check out my website for like those upcoming workshops that you can now do from the comfort of your own home. Like we're doing everything else right now. Yes. Um, I have a brand new online self-paced course for parents, um, that also professionals have told me that they're really enjoying as a way to support parents of kids with really, confusing tough challenging behaviors Uh that's been a really fun thing to work on and put out in the world and support parents and then I try to do a monthly very low cost uh, webinar for parents and professionals either myself or I invite guests on to the webinar series so I have several of those lined up and um, ready to go as we again just try to get through these this time where we're not, never leaving our house.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I know uh, some of this is not ready yet, but uh, I know you're. We could put a teaser out there, or maybe yes, i love time, to. Maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be ready. Uh-huh. I know you're partnering yeah. with your pal Marshall Lyles on some stuff. So what what's coming up with that?
2: We do, Are you Marshall. Still <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm excited about it, too. And Marshall and I already partner on this amazing embodied attachment experiential workshop for child and play therapists. And then we um, have decided our next passion project for the world is supporting therapists in doing parts work with kids and families. There's just not a lot out there on using this parts framework. Right. with kids and families and it is our favorite way to work. So we um, have outlined um, a really exciting course and a book and are hoping to offer that into the world soon.
1: Great, yeah. good, 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 good. Well, goodbye <laughs> for now. And again, always so wonderful to talk with you.
0: Thank you, Karen, it is just so fun. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption trauma and attachment theory.